time uh, for the reading of Scripture. Okay, so this is Galatians chapter 3, at the very end of the chapter. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Have a seat. So there you have it. Uh, Scholars agree pretty universally on this, that this is the central message of the letter to the Galatians. Everything that we've been studying and looking at leading up to right here, this point, uh, is, is basically all culminating right here. Like speaking of music, Danny, if this letter were a song, this would be like the crescendo, if you will. All of the themes and the motifs so far in the story that we've been picking up on are building, building, building to this point right here that we just read where they all kind of come together, collide together and harmonize with each other. It's actually kind of surprising how bad I am at describing what music is. I should really just stick with references that I know, um, which I don't know music. I'm not a musician. So if this is the center of the message, then we need to understand it so that we can really be able to join along with the song and harmonize with it. There I go with the music analogy again. I promise I'm going to stop right now. Um, So Galatians, as you know by now, those of you who have been with us, um, Galatians was written in response to some wrong-headed leaders in the church who were trying to force a diverse group of people to become culturally Jewish before they could belong in the family of God. And the rhetoric was like this, like, until then... Until you become like us, culturally speaking, then we really prefer that you like sit way over there. There's literally different tables for different ethnic groups. It's actually what's going on in the first century church at the time. Now, we don't talk like that. That's not a rhetoric. But that way of thinking has still divided the church, especially in the last couple of years. Just this week, my friend Eva, our kids director here, she showed me this video of a pastor somewhere. I'm not exactly sure where. Um, And he was like ranting in his message and saying like, if you vote Democrat, get up, walk out, you don't belong here. You're not, and there's met with applause in his church. It's like crazy to me that things like that exist in our world still, but they do. So the message of Galatians teaches that if that's your cause, if your cause is cutting out Jesus people who don't conform to your secondary views on whatever, They could be deeply held convictions, critical race theory, rule of law, gun control, whatever else, your racial, uh, 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 cultural heritage. If that's the case, if, if that's what your cause is, then you're actually working against the gospel. You're actively rebuilding walls of division that Jesus died to tear down. Rebuilding walls of division that Jesus died to tear down. Case in point, verse 28 of Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek, or Gentile, excuse me, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So a major purpose and function of the cross was to form one new humanity out of all of the families of the earth. And to miss that point is to miss a major component of the gospel. Paul is saying that if you miss that, it's hard to even have an orthodox gospel. In fact, I think he's arguing that that's not the case. 
I'm kind of getting ahead of myself already, so let me back up and, and, and talk about what does this verse actually mean? What does this verse actually mean? Well, he's not teaching male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, free. He's definitely not teaching that the church is like a uniform, gender-neutral, homogenous blob where we squash out all of our distinctions. He's teaching the opposite. He's saying that we are very diverse, but that we're equally beloved, even in spite of all of our differences. So if we're going to truly understand this message and the core of this message, we have to, again, understand the biblical storyline or the plot of God's redemption like we've been talking about. But it's super critical to understand God's message here from Galatians for us. You might remember last couple of weeks we've been talking about Abraham and the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. It's known in the world of theology as the Abrahamic covenant where God promises that he will make Abraham into a great nation or a large family and then he says all of the families of the earth will be blessed through you this has been a part of God's agenda from the very beginning is not an ethnocentric gospel or an ethnocentric uh, uh, organization institution he's had this in, in mind this multi-ethnic all the families of the earth kind of a family in mind look also at Psalm 22, so that's Genesis 12, Psalm 22, much later in the story, the scripture says this, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all of the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship, and all who go down to the dust will kneel before him. <laughs> I love this, by the way. This is much later in the story. This song was written to tell about the coming Messiah who would one day come and he would unite all of the nations of the earth under his loving and peaceful and gracious rule. And by the way, this is the exact same poem or psalm that Jesus quotes when he's on the cross. Psalm 22 verse 1 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's, that's the same exact psalm. Uh, just a few verses later. So essentially what Jesus is doing in his final breaths as he's hanging on the cross is he's calling back to the prophetic song from Psalm 22 and suggesting that his sacrificial death is ushering in that loving rule. And there's something uh, mysterious and there's something miraculous about it, but God is doing this. He's, he's unfolding a new family uh, through the cross. Uh, turn one more time, this time to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is a prophetic writer, and he's writing about the, what he calls the age to come. And he has this big sort of gnarly vision about uh, four major world empires. He's referring to specifically like the Roman Empire, the Greco, uh, Greek Empire, and things like this. And he, he has this big gnarly vision about these empires, and they're fading away, and they're crumbling to the ground. And then he follows that vision with another vision. At the very, as soon as that, that vision is over, this is what the next one says. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. One like a son of man. And he's come in with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is amazing. This is incredible. Uh, 
In other words, one day the major world empires, marked by their violence and their dominance, will all be united under the worship of the one true king, the son of man, who has all authority and all glory and all power. Amen. Amen? Come on. And then in walks this guy named Jesus in the opening pages of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what do they call him? They call him the son of man. In fact, the book of Mark repeats that moniker dozens of times. And at the end, he's, he's, Jesus is walking uh, to Jerusalem. He knows he's about to go to his death. At this time, no one else knows that he is. And they were, his disciples were asking him about that Daniel 7 vision. They were asking him about what his reading of it was. They knew it by heart. It was a big part of their cultural imagination was this, this Daniel vision about when Messiah will come. And he responds by saying, the son of man, again, Daniel 7, and now by extension him, Jesus, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Meaning, many meaning the nations, meaning all peoples. Again, this is the plot line. This is what God has been doing throughout the entire arc of scripture. They were expecting a Messiah with a show of force, of violence, dominance, like the rest of the empires of the world. And what they got was a Messiah who died sacrificially. And somehow, mysteriously, he accomplished the Abrahamic promise as a result of going to his cross. Verse uh, 27 of today's passage. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. And there is no distinction between Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female. Right? So I heard one pastor call this like the coming of age story of us as the children of God. This is how you and I are welcomed into God's family. It's through Jesus. It's through his sacrificial death. And because of that, we don't become need to become culturally a specific way in order to belong. We are just children of his. So in Christ, we actually retain our differences. We're not actually meant to be this like gender neutral, beige, like, like blob of humanity. We're actually meant to be quite diverse. But as we retain our differences, the chasms that lay between us of politics and gender and theology and ethnicity and social, or excuse me, social class systems, all of those chasms that used to be a problem for us are now bridged by his agape love. Where there used to be hostility and like impossible friendship, we are now united as sisters and brothers in his kingdom. And by united, I do not mean like keeping one another at arm's length. By that, I mean we embrace one another as genuine family, equal members, co-heirs with Christ. This is a vitally important thing for us to internalized. So uh, I love the image of a mosaic. Uh, this is helpful for me to see what I think the scriptures is teaching us. Here's an example of a mosaic. Um, a mosaic is a picture that's made up of tons of other pictures. And each one of these pictures is actually pretty distinct. Some of them very different from one another, but they come together and they kind of come together in pieces and they form this beautiful piece of art that's united and tells a unified story. And that's what, like what we are meant to be, right? So to flatten out and um, flatten out our diversity, to segregate along ideological lines, or to believe that what I bring or what I believe is more important, better, or correct, or more integral than someone else is to, again, rebuild the dividing lines 
that Jesus died to tear down. Paul, in uh, a very similar kind of argument he's making to the Ephesian church, he wrote to um, address an, another conflict in the early church, this time with the Ephesians. He wrote it 10 to 15 years after he wrote Galatians. And this is what it says. Now in Christ Jesus, that phrase is really important. Hold on to that. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, and here he's speaking about, in context, he's speaking about people who are ethnically non-Jewish. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. And he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. We all just heard that. None, none of us made that up. That's what God has to say. So the diverse, beautiful mosaic of the new multi-ethnic family of God is not like a nice byproduct of the gospel that's primarily about something else. It's part and parcel of God's total plan and divine purpose for the cross. He's tearing down and destroying barriers between groups of people, and he's forging a new peace-filled humanity out of all of us who believe. And one of the reasons why we in the West have such a hard time hearing this gospel message is because our gospel is so individualistic. We've made the gospel about you and me getting our ticket punched to heaven. And there's some truth to that form of the gospel. It's just way too loud and we need to turn that down and turn up the other aspects of the gospel, which is that Jesus is king. And the role of humanity is to come underneath Jesus' exaltation and inauguration as king. And as we do that, we are saved. We are incorporated into the body of Christ. So like 1 Corinthians 12 says, I don't get to say, actually, that's a member that we don't need in the body. No one can look at another body part and say, I don't have need of you. That's not how the gospel works. The gospel is about Jesus' uh, kingship being illuminated on the cross and being inaugurated through his life, death, and resurrection. And so we get to participate in that. So that means that if you are a Russian Orthodox person who lives in Moscow or if you are the Ukrainian refugee in Poland, if you identify as a Jesus person, then you are a part of the same family. And that's about as stark of an example as I can think to give, but it also applies to the hundreds of other examples that we could possibly come up with. Now, there's a ton more layers to this passage, as I'm sure you can imagine, and we are not going to get to nearly all of them. We're just barely scratching the surface. Two more layers I want to talk about before we're done. If you've been around, you probably remember Paul used to be a Pharisee uh, named Saul. And Pharisees were known for their loyal law-keeping, but they're also known for their religious pride and hypocrisy. And you are familiar with them if you're reading the gospel stories, because Jesus is always opposing the religious elitism of the Pharisees. And he's calling out their hypocrisy one at a time. So from history, we know uh, there was a common prayer from the Pharisees at the time that goes like this. God, thank you for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So you know there's a problem when your prayers are racist and sexist? 
And that's exactly what the Pharisees were. And, and again, this was, this was Paul's cultural heritage. Like he prayed like this, no doubt, a lot in his early years. And this was, again, the perspective of those wrong-headed church leaders who had been corrupting the Galatian church. We are in tier one as the Jewish men and everyone else, women, non-Jews, poor people are beneath us. And I suppose we could consider including them if, you know, they basically come away along with our way of thinking. They become culturally like me and everything else. If you are willing to go over all of the obstacles, then I suppose we can incorporate you into the family of God. We'll tolerate them, if you will. But look at that verse, or excuse me, look at that prayer uh, against and lined up with verse 28. Again, this, some will say, is the center of Pauline theology. All of the 13 letters that Paul has written, some would say that this is the center of all of it. God, thank you. There's that prayer again, the Pharisaical prayer. Thank you for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Look at this. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. It's pretty overt, isn't it? It's overt. What's he doing? Paul is sticking his neck out and he is confessing the religious hypocrisy of his youth and he's exposing his friends for corrupting the gospel. Cultural elitism in the church has to die before we can experience the beauty of the whole gospel. And before its power will be, will be unveiled to a post-Christian secular society. I genuinely believe I've been a student of our culture and a student of the Bible for the better part of 20 years. And I am convinced that it's our tolerance of various forms of elitism and our tolerance for divisions. And this is why unity eludes us. It's also the primary reason why your friends can't really be convinced that your Christianity is little more than a personal hobby. Because we're not living the gospel that we say we believe. And if the millions of Christians in the world can't love one another while being united to Jesus, then how is this a credible gospel at all? And they have a point. Because that's exactly what Jesus said we would do. If you follow after me, here is my new commandment, that you love one another even as I have loved you. This is how all men and women will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. They're right to push back on our failure to love. The great Leslie Newbigin writes, It will only be by movements that begin with the local congregation in which the reality of the new creation is present, known, and experienced, and from which men and women will go into every sector of public life to claim it for Christ, to unmask the illusions which have remained hidden, and to expose all areas of public life to the illumination of the gospel. Amen. See, our, our lack of, of love for one another has come at the cost of our compelling witness in society. So we traded it because we're unwilling to preserve unity or unable or ignorant or distracted from preserving unity. It has, we have lost our compelling witness in society. So Paul is saying, and, we, and, and I would argue, that we need to take a page from the book, take a page from the book and redevote ourselves to familial love despite the fact that we are different in so many different ways. Actually, that's kind of the point. We are devoted to love one another. 
And I've been hearing from a lot of you throughout this series, and you're like pumped on this message. You're pumped on Galatians. You're excited for what we're talking about. And I'm glad. I'm pumped that you're pumped, and I'm pumped too, right? Um, I'm afraid that the message that we've taken from Galatians so far is like, yeah, you're right. Everyone does need to accept me (laughs) and my generation and my theological viewpoint and my cultural heritage. Everyone does need to accept me. Or who I am. That pastor in Kentucky, the one wherever he was, needs to make room for Democrats in his church and blah, blah, blah. Okay, if that's what you've internalized, that's okay. It's, it's, I'm, I'm kind of making that point. But I think you're internalizing something slightly wrong. And the question is about you and me. Who is it that you and I are tempted to exclude? Who are we tempted to ignore as a part of the family? Who are are we wishing that we did not have to embrace as family? See, Paul, I think very wisely, is confessing and calling out the hypocrisy of his own tribe. His own tribe. Man, can you think about society now? We're so... uh, quick to point out other people's hypocrisy, other tribes' issues and problems, but we refuse to turn the mirror in on ourselves. Um, I wasn't planning on saying this, but I went to this Southern Baptist school for college. It's where I got my undergrad, and it's become the largest Christian university in the world, and um, it's a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, and there's a ton of really great Southern Baptist people part of of that convention but years ago there was this accusation brought against these people who by the way write a lot of the textbooks that I continue to read as I prepare these sermons and there is so much corruption sexual abuse that's being tolerated thousands of allegations against Southern Baptist pastors and for years Southern Baptist Convention has swept that under the rug they wrote the textbook that I read this week There is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. I read their position. I incorporated that into my message. They would say they believe everything that I'm talking about right here. But tell that to the thousands of women who reported sexual misconduct by their pastors and leaders, the ones who are supposed to lead them to Jesus. And they go, there's nothing to see here. We'd rather protect our image, then stand by our sisters who've been subjected to rape. What the hell is that? You see what I'm saying? See, we have to recognize our own stuff. Like, we have to own our own stuff. And Paul is saying, I can't call you my sister, subject you to sexual exploitation, and then pretend like everything's good. That's not equality. Amen. Preach it. Yeah. So we, we have to not just look at the caricature of a pastor a couple thousand miles away who's getting all fired up about people voting Democrat. We need to look within ourselves to see where our hypocrisy lies 
And where we are tempted to exclude or to ignore. Sorry, that was a, that was a rant. Uh, <laughs> so throughout the New Testament, and at, like really, honestly, a major theme in the New Testament, I've already quoted it at least four times. I looked it up this week. This is one of the most common phrases in the New Testament is this phrase, in Christ. So in the verses we just read, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God by faith. You are all one in Christ, literally all over the New Testament. And we sometimes hear it so much or read it so much that we skip over what it actually means. So scholars would tell us is that this is in the world of theology known as Christologically incorporative ecclesiology. So if you're a single guy and you're looking to attract a nice like Christian woman, don't ever use that <laughs> phrase to try and like pick her up or something like that. I, <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, but essentially what this means Incorporative, Christologically incorporative ecclesiology, what this actually means is that when you trust in Jesus, you are grafted, or in the language of Galatians, incorporated into his body. Colossians 3, verses 3 and 4 is a great example of this. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So when Christ, who is your life, appears you will also appear with him in glory. So essentially what the scripture is saying here is that when you trust in Jesus, Jesus is both a man who is king, who died and rose again and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, but he also has a whole community of people who are defined in him, in Christ. You are incorporated into the body of Christ, which is why that's a very common metaphor for the church in the New Testament. And essentially what Paul is getting across here is, uh, is a number of different things. He says, as, as you are incorporated into the family of God, what, what he means by this is, is this. All are sons of God in Messiah Jesus. All are sons of God in Messiah Jesus. All are baptized into the Messiah. So we all are part of the same baptism, meaning that, yes, when we, baptize, when we were baptized, it was a personal decision, but we are all taken into the waters of Jesus' baptism, and we are all now, because I was baptized into Christ, you were baptized into Christ, now we are unified in that. We are clothed with the Messiah. This is an example of what Jesus means by his righteousness being put onto us. So because you have received Christ, both you and I have been clothed with the righteousness of God, which is, again, how we are forgiven and how we are seen now by the Father. And then all are one in Messiah Jesus. All belong to the Messiah Jesus. So we belong to him. We like to think of ourselves as individuals and self-actualized and kind of our own little, I don't know, our own uh, autonomous selves. And there's some truth to that. You have a lot of freedom as a human being. But you belong to the Messiah. If you've trusted in him, he's your king. And therefore, you're Abraham's seed and promised heirs. We've talked about that in weeks past, so we won't get into it now. But since you are in Christ, and since I am in Christ, and since other people who are different from you, politics, race, gender, ideology, because they are also in Christ... We have all been incorporated into his body. So to reject sisters and brothers is to reject the body of Christ. 
is actually to be a, a part of the problem in the body. Again, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12 says that one body part cannot say to another body part that I don't have need for you. Direct quote from Corinthians. See, Jesus doesn't treat us like this. He, he brought us in by his grace, and it's through faith that we receive our salvation. And it's by his grace that we are accepted into the family. And it's a good, good thing that, 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 that Jesus doesn't treat us like that. It's a good thing that he doesn't put up other obstacles and ideological barriers and cultural barriers and things like that in order for us to belong. Because if he did, then I couldn't belong. You couldn't belong in the family of God. Essentially what he's saying is, again, you are all one. Not that your distinction and your difference or your diversity is squashed out or stamped out, but that we are all equal in the eyes of God. So one final layer before we're done, and this is it. Uh, the reading of Galatians that we've been teaching over the last couple of months is sometimes criticized uh, by wise, Jesus-loving people, by the way, who would uh, say that this way of teaching Galatians, like we've been teaching it to you, uh, is kind of pulled from the headlines. They, they, would, they would say that the way that we've been unfolding these verses is pulled from our like American headlines. You know what I mean by that? Like, For some, it feels like we've taken a script from the 21st century progressive, secular, globalist agenda. Like this message that I've been giving to you belongs more like on the floor of the UN with like a few Bible verses crammed into it or something like that. And I understand why, for some people, that would be a big problem. And I think it would be a big problem for me, too, if we were just pulling our messages from headlines, for sure. And I don't want anyone to be confused or to be convoluted about whether or not this is like a socio-political movement or whether we are a community following Jesus, submitting ourselves to his teaching. It's the latter, by the way. That's who we actually are. But if you've wondered that, if, you've, if you like some, like, again, good, loving Jesus people, Pastors in our town, in fact, would, would, would say this. You're just pulling this reading of the scriptures out of today's headlines. So if you've wondered that, I would just encourage you to go back and listen to the last couple months of teachings and ask yourself if this really sounds like our culture's globalist script. Or... Does it sound like God's total plan of redemption to unite all things under Christ? Or does it sound like Revelation, the closing scene of the Bible, where God's throne of righteousness and justice is being fully established and every tribe, tongue, and nation is there, represented, shouting praise, and bowing knee to King Jesus? Or does it sound like that? See, I would argue that this reading of Galatians is a deeply biblical plot line of God's redemption that's woven throughout the entire library of scripture from Genesis through the Pentateuch and the history books and the wisdom literature and the prophets and certainly, definitely all of the New Testament. And I would flip it around to say this. I don't actually believe that we are pulling from any script from, uh, from our culture or from uh, the globalist secular agenda. I would actually say it's the opposite. You see, when the church loses sight of and when the church abandons our vocation and our calling 
to forge a fiercely loyal, multi-ethnic community under Jesus as a witness to the power of the gospel and the inbreaking kingdom of God, secular society still longs for its redemption. It's crying out, still longs for it, still wants it, and it creates a void. And so when there is a void, if there is a void of a compelling witness from God's family, then broader society strives for a solution. And its solution is a humanist version of a solution of like the kingdom of God, but without the king. So some of the ethics of the kingdom, but not the kingdom of Jesus. And in the void of Jesus-loving people pioneering a fiercely loyal multi-ethnic community, our world is crying out for some solution along those lines. Exhibit A, Imagine by John Lennon. Seriously. A song almost universally loved by our culture. Most of you are way too young for it. So am I, sort of, I guess. I'll include myself in that group. Sorry, Don, I didn't mean to slam you, brother. Um, but, but Imagine by John Lennon is like a secular psalm. It's like a sacred song for our humanist worldview. And it kind of haunts me because it has this like really beautiful melody. It's crazy catchy, it's super enticing, and yet its message is like a total lie. Here's the lyrics. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. Interesting. You guys, this is exactly what lies are made of. It's like 40% straight kingdom of God, good Jesus, love and stuff. And 60% kingdom of darkness. It's just filled with lies. And this is the gospel of secularism in the void of Jesus' people pioneering a, uh, a, a one new family under Christ. This is what rushes in to fill the void. We are going to progress to world peace and utopia through like self-actualization, poetry, sharing, and psychedelics and probably a bunch of other stuff, right? See, the globalist script is just a bastardization of the true gospel that's born out of necessity because humanity is still desperate and deeply longing for redemption. And their solution falls horrendously flat, as we all know that it would, because it's devoid of the presence of Jesus, the cross, and the presence of the Holy Spirit. But the tragedy that I feel is not to point the, the finger at Lenin, but to actually just go, bro, man, Lenin, you should have been able to see that from the people of Jesus. This was the witness that we were supposed to have for you. You should have been able to look at the, the life of the church and go, man, they love people well. Different in every way, but man, do they love each other. See, God's vision 
was for secular humanists, people who would describe themselves as secular humanists today, was to see what you're singing about, Lenin singing about in, in me and in our family. So I would say that we're not ripping our message from the headlines. I would say that the headlines are ripping their message from the Bible. And they haven't gotten the heart of God from us because they've been, we've been distracted, disunified. We've been essentially neglecting the greatest commandment from Jesus to love one another as he loves us. That hits you as a hard challenge. I'm not trying to leave you on a sour note. I'm actually just hopefully wanting to encourage. There's actually a ton of hope. This is actually why I believe that um, we are on the verge of a, another awakening of sorts. I hope a great uh, like coastal awakening on the West Coast to the gospel of Jesus because the secular vision is crumbling at the foundation. And our society is still looking and is still desperate for an answer. And it's been expounded hundreds of different ways, thousands probably, in the last 150 years. So, the, so, so people who subscribe to secular gospel are really desperate. The question is, will we possess the character to truly love? Do we possess that character? Will we be responsible for and possess the resolve to forge a fiercely loyal, loving family that can withstand our differences. And if we do, I believe that the church will regain a compelling witness and voice in our society to the point where your friends would actually see your Christianity as more than a personal hobby, but something that possesses the power to change the world for the better. Yeah. Will you and I come awake to our God-given purpose to shine the light on our future with Jesus on the throne and him making peace? I started with sharing with you a story of, I think, a pastor who got it horribly, horribly wrong. He said, if you vote Democrat, get up, get out. You don't belong here. I think that the orthodox gospel way of addressing political difference in the church or just about any other difference would be if you vote Democrat or fill in the blank with whatever issue. If you vote Democrat, get ready. Because I know a lot of people here are going to vote Republican really passionately. And we're all part of the same family. We have been all called as sisters and brothers. And we might have opinions, deeply held opinions about American politics we might fight over and disagree about our convictions, but we pledge our allegiance to King Jesus and to his kingdom. And one day, just like uh, the empires of Daniel 7, one day our empire, America, our government, Wall Street, our economic system, and everything that is a part of our civilization will one day fade away. And when it does... That will actually be an amazing thing because it will mean that we are closer to the reign of Jesus. We are closer to his eminent return. 
So I realize we've been talking about some big ideas here today, um, uh, and we only just barely touched it, you know? There's so much more. But the application, I think, is very simple. I think that you and I can live into this way of unity very simply. And that's to start just by inviting some dang people over for dinner tonight. There are some amazing people sitting around you. You know that, right? Like, they're really cool. I know a lot of you, maybe most of you. You're some really cool people. There's, and there's, oh, there is. There's Riverbend at night tonight. So come to Riverbend at night. But tomorrow, have somebody over for dinner. And, and, and you don't expect to agree. Don't expect them to agree with you. Have, like, great philosophical and ideological conversations about whatever you want to talk about. But at the end of the night, make sure you're praying for one another that, and acknowledging them, embracing them as sister and as brother. I love um, uh, Eugene Peterson has this great book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I believe that we need to steer the ship towards real, genuine love. And the way that we do that is by hundreds, if not thousands, of acts of generous love today and tomorrow and the next day and the day after that and the day after that. And if I'm doing it and you're doing it and you're doing it and we're all starting to do it, then over time, that kind, that style of even when I disagree, generous love is going to begin to take hold in us. And I believe that it's going to bring real flourishing both in the church but also for broader society. So we love one another as an extension of our mission, as an extension of our mission. So uh, also, pray for the unity of the church. <laughs> we, we, we pray several hours every week together as a church here at the chapel. You can uh, see the sign on the way out. You can check our website, our socials, and everything else. You can join us for prayer. And we are contending for an awakening to the gospel. And one of the things we often pray for is for the unity of the church. It's very easy for me to get up here and talk to you, but the reality is I still actually have a genuinely difficult time accepting some brothers and sisters in our city who think very differently than me. I do. I need this prayer. You need this prayer. We all need this prayer. Don't, and second to last, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Again, some of us can, and I'm probably guilty of this a lot, is we can actually grow really pretentious about what we think we know, what we think we're really confident in, what we're really certain of. And that's the kind of maybe a symptom of being millennial. I don't know. I feel like that's kind of like us as a tribe. We kind of, we kind of think we know a lot. But what that does is it actually begin, it allows us or affords us the right to actually be uh, hypercritical and to vilify people who are different. And that's not what we want to do. We actually want to recognize that there are some people, maybe much wiser and even smarter. I know it's really crazy and hard to believe, but somebody smarter than you even, who thinks differently than you do. And as long as we're all trusting in Jesus as king, then the reality is that while we disagree, we still embrace one another as family. And then finally, we don't divide over gospel issues. Just purpose in yourself. There's a lot of things that I will do probably today, at least five. I'm just guessing. I've been talking for 40 minutes. I've probably annoyed you five or more times. But purpose in yourself that you're not going to divide over annoyances, that you're not going to break fellowship over things that are not the gospel. You, if, if I start preaching another gospel, run. 
but, but if we divide over non-gospel issues, then we're putting the walls back up that Jesus died to tear down. Let's pray.